There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your guide to the whitetail woods. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel for the stand, saddle, or blind. First Light, go further, stay longer. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this week on the show, I'm joined by Bobby Kendall and Toby Stay of the Whitetail Group to discuss their approach to building elite whitetail hunting properties. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. Today we are continuing our Habitat Month series, and we've got two really interesting guests. We've got a set of ideas, concepts, and philosophies that I think are uh, very next level. We get into the nitty-gritty on some stuff that I think the real whitetail habitat crazies out there Uh, that are listening right now, like me, are going to find really interesting. My guests today are Bobby Kendall and Toby Stay of the Whitetail Group. So two guys who are absolutely addicted to taking whitetail properties to the next level and their own hunting to that level too. And they've done it, not just for themselves, but on a wider scale for other people through their company, the Whitetail Group. The Whitetail Group does a number of things. They provide land consultations. They've got a logging division that focuses on conducting logging projects with a whitetail focus. They build a bunch of different products for hunting, their own tree coys, box blinds, stuff like that. But most notably, they buy and sell developed farms. And it's this last part that caught my attention over on their YouTube channel where they showcase all this stuff. Over there, you can follow their projects as they buy these raw pieces of ground and then transform them over the course of months, sometimes years, into what they call elite whitetail hunting experiences. 
And in watching these videos, I've been able to witness, you know, Bobby and Toby's extreme attention to detail. And I think, if, I think it's fair to say or a, a pretty outside-the-box approach in many cases to building, manipulating, and improving whitetail habitat. They're, they're really building true whitetail meccas, absolute dream scenarios. And they're sharing a lot of the ideas that they're using to create these places, um, which is why I found their video series very, very interesting and why it seemed like they would be the perfect guests to join us here for another installment during our Habitat Month. Now, I will say, um, I think it's probably fair to say, the approach that Bobby and Toby use in their land work might not be for everyone. It's probably not going to be for everyone. There's there's a level here of manipulation and influencing of deer movement through some of their projects that is definitely more extreme than most. Uh, it's it's quite effective, it seems, but it's probably or possibly going to seem like too much to some people. Not to mention, you know, very time and resource intensive as well. So this this stuff might not be for everyone. And there might be some people who hear this and say, ah, this is this is too much. This is too heavy handed. You're forcing the deer to do things um, that are outside of the natural. And that's fair feedback. I, I guess I don't have a position on it that I'm going to put out here right now. I think I have um, a level of intrigue in the ideas that they're presenting. And I will leave it up to all of you to decide whether or not it's appropriate for the hunting experience or the goals that you have. Uh, so whether you want to follow Bobby and Toby's prescriptions to a T or just borrow a few small ideas here and there and you know disregard the rest, um, I do think there's something we can learn today. And I guess that ties into something that these guys focus on, which is this group part of the whitetail group name. And what that alludes to, you know, according to Bobby, is this fact that, you know, they've been trying to develop a crew that wants to pull in ideas from all sorts of different people. You know, in talking to Bobby prior to our conversation, he emphasized this fact that, you know, there's no one right way to do this. There's no single way you have to do this. Uh, and that's why they've pulled in a lot of different people to partner with, to work on projects with, to consult with uh, folks like Lee Likoski, Ben Rising, Mark Luster, uh, and a number of other folks. And I think it shows in the diverse approaches and ideas that they bring to the table for you know land improvement and hunting. So I guess that's all to say. I think today's episode is is a banger. I mean, I think it's really interesting. If you are a whitetail habitat junkie, this one is for you. This is This is an advanced conversation. We go into some really nitty gritty details, some different kind of concepts with a with a strong eye towards this very strategic, highly planned set of improvements that can create high odds hunting scenarios. So we're talking strategic, you know, very strategic food plot designs and setups. We're talking next level access ideas, some really unique approaches to creating bedding areas that are specifically designed for hunting opportunities, and, and much, much more. So give this one a listen. Filter it through what seems appropriate in your scenario, what seems realistic in your scenario. Take some ideas, leave some ideas. Find what's right, but learn something. That's my wish for you today, and I think you certainly will. So without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Bobby Kendall and Toby Stay. All right, here with me now on the line, I've got Bobby Kendall and Toby Stay. Gentlemen, thank you so much for making time to do this. Thanks for having us, man. 
I'm looking. I've been looking forward to this since, man. It would have been this past October or November. I started thinking, man, I gotta get these guys on the show. I had been sitting in the tree, watching over some food plots of mine, hunting, and thinking to myself, I want to do this thing. I really gotta tweak this thing next year. I gotta tweak this other thing. You know, this coming winter. I was thinking through all the different ideas like we do during hunting season, and. I I don't know, I can't remember the exact moment, but somewhere along the way I was triggered. I remembered a YouTube thumbnail I saw from you guys at some point. And I remember thinking, I gotta go watch that video. I remember seeing it and thinking about it, like I gotta watch that. And then when I was hunting, I said, Okay, I gotta I gotta do it. And that night, I remember laying in bed and I just went down the whitetail group wormhole. I mean, I just watched everything, kept watching it and watching it and watching. And then the next night, and I remember in my rut, my First week of rutcation in November, I remember watching some stuff and then listening to a conversation that Bobby, you had with maybe Ben Rising on one of his shows. And I, I just went really deep into the Bobby and Toby yep. wormhole. And I got to thinking, all right, it's time we got to have this conversation. So this has been a long time coming. And you guys are part of what's basically our, our month of deep dives into habitat here in the podcast. Everybody this month is focused on how to improve habitat for whitetails and for hunting. Um, and you guys do that like a lot of people, but I feel like you've got a little bit different angle than many folks do. And I'm curious about something you guys have written right across the top of your website. And it's something you talk a lot about and you mention within the introduction to a lot of your videos and different stuff like that. And that's the fact that you guys are trying to develop the elite whitetail hunting experience. You develop farms for the elite whitetail hunting experience. You've got plans and designs and ideas for an elite whitetail hunting experience. What does that mean? How, how do you guys define what the elite whitetail hunting experience is that you guys are trying to build for yourselves or your clients? Um, I don't know, Bobby, if you want to kick things off there, but what comes to mind when you guys define that for yourselves? Yeah, well, obviously, you know, we're diehard deer hunters. We're, we're, we're after, you know, the biggest buck in the woods, try and grow them, hold them, all that stuff. But ironically, that, that question is the elite hunting experience, whitetail deer hunting experience is kind of a loaded question. It's different for all people. So some farms we develop, you know, we're developing specifically for a person that's, that's having us find them a farm and develop it. And sometimes that's just somebody that's wanting to get out of the city. They want general deer hunting. They want plenty of stands for their, their kids and family. They want to be able to ride four wheelers in the off season. So that experience is different for everybody. Although our, our forte and what, what we, what it's all built around, what we strive for is, is, is to create the best chances of putting the biggest, most mature deer in the area in front of you in bow range uh, consistently. So that, that to me kind of defines what the that elite, uh, whitetail experience is. Would you add anything to that, Toby? Yeah, I, I agree. You know, we're, we can do the development for anybody, anywhere, you know, anything that they're looking to do on the property, but we do lean more towards the, the 2%. You know the the super elite trophy hunter that wants that special deer, and you know to be able to consistently have an opportunity at that special deer or to grow them to hold them, it, it takes some outside of the box thinking and some 
overanalyzing sometimes of things. And it's, you know, we, we, we want to shoot 200 inch deer. We want to shoot Boone and Crockett deer on a consistent basis. And that's, that's what I see the elite experience being. Okay. So if you had, if we were, if we were maybe standing up in front of an auditorium, there's a whole bunch of camo clad, you know, drooling whitetail hunters in the uh, in the audience, just like dying to learn about how you guys do this. You're up there with a white a whiteboard and a marker, and you were going to write your one, two, three, or one, two, three, four the the core pillars of what creates that, like what you must have to achieve that elite whitetail hunting experience that you just described, Toby. You know, what would be those three or four or however many things you would list off as like must have this, must have this, must have this as those beginning foundational elements. Uh, what would be that thing to open up the classroom right now? Toby? what do you think you would write up there? Uh, the right neighborhood, correct access and low pressure. Okay. Top three. What do you miss Bobby? Anything? <laughs> um, well, no, I think he hit on, on hit on it. So I'll, I'll tell you what I what I start out telling people, whether I'm going out looking at a logging project we're doing for somebody or, you know, our, our consults we do. I try and get people rethinking and, re, you know, reevaluating. And the answer to that is it's something that everybody in that room can do, <clears throat> whether whether that it's just, you know, a lease or it's a farm that they have full control and are going to go bananas on or if they just have the means to do a couple of things, it's something they can all do. And when I start my conversations with people um, about, and a lot of them are all gung-ho about doing habitat work and all this stuff, is I say, would you rather hunt a thousand-acre nature preserve, wildlife refuge, this wide-open hardwoods, or would you rather hunt, and this is not anything against public ground, it's just an analogy of pressure, would you rather hunt pressure or uh, public land in Iowa that's managed by biologists and foresters, and, you know, there's grasses and, you know, all this stuff. But there's, but it's open to hunting, and there's lots of pressure. Well, I think all of us would choose the wildlife refuge, nature preserve that has no um, habitat work even done because of pressure. That's, you know, in my opinion, that's the number one thing. The tool at Arsenal that we all have as deer hunters to make our farms better, and that's where it all begins. And my whole point usually is to people: nothing works without a a strategy, a plan. Somebody with a great plan and strategy on a farm that's got no habitat work will be more successful than somebody's got a hodgepodge together um, habitat plan. They're doing all this stuff, but none of them, <clears throat> none of it makes sense as far as a pressure standpoint, access, dominant winds, thermals, all these other things. So, it, uh, and that's a big rabbit hole to go down. But um, I would say it's pressure and it's having a solid plan from the get go to implement so that. You can hunt as little of your farm as possible, but do it effectively because you're literally trying to recreate that wildlife refuge place uh, for a deer to feel safe and get to the age we're trying to get them to, um, to, to, to be as big as we're wanting them all to be. Yeah. Yeah. That plan thing is, uh, is, is somewhere that I stumbled to. I, I remember, you know, early on when I started dabbling with habitat stuff, I was just so excited to do something to do anything. I was just looking for like the easiest opportunity to, you know, put some seed in the ground. And, and I thought I'd be growing big bucks, you know, right out the gate. And, and in two different places, I remember I planted these food plots in the one easiest place to plant a plot, like 
plot seemed like the sexy thing to do. It seemed like the easiest way to get, you know, a great bang for your buck as far as like making an impact. And then I just found the opening and I was like, all right, this is where I'm going to do it. I'm going to put my seed down. I'm going to grow this lush green plot and there's going to be, you know, big deer coming out of the woodwork. Little did I, you know, know or think about how that would impact my access and my exit and what me moving past that food source, educating all these deer every time would do and all the ripple effects, you know, from that. I, I think a lot of people fall into that kind of mistake, right? Um, oh, yeah. So yeah. when when you guys start a process like this for yourselves or on a new farm that you're building for someone or that you're going to, you know, work on in one way or another, what does that plan building process look like? You know, where do you start and then how do you personally go about building that? Um, cause this seems like if, if we can't figure this out, nothing else is worth doing. Right, Bobby. Right. Yeah. And it's kind of, it's kind of, a you know, no two farms are the same. Um, and like Toby said earlier, sometimes it, it, it takes thinking outside the box. Um, I'd say the big things though, like are, obviously access dominant winds and then um you know and and that kind of gets you a general idea of kind of what you can do and then from there like we're kind of i almost say we're creating a foundation of a farm because sometimes the foundation like you said oh i can put a plot over here because it's why it's open and i can put it here well it might not make any sense to put it there it might actually be detrimental um whereas what we're kind of doing and we facilitate a lot of this through with our logging um, division, ingress, egress, dominant winds, where do we want the deer to bed based off of where we could put a food plot? And, uh, and we start working from there. And uh, again, this is kind of rabbit hole to go down, but you know, we'll go in that area, let's say where we want to make them or up our odds. Cause that's all we have as hunters. Right. So, um, you know, we all have our thoughts and ideas. There's no right or wrong. There is no right or wrong. I think the only thing that we can all agree on is that we, we have the ability to stack odds and raise probability and we can do that exponentially. So if we can, if we can coax the deer into bedding in a certain spot because of the way we're wanting to access a food plot that we're creating, it ups our odds of not spooking the deer and having them come into the plot the way we want them to. So we'll go into that, let's say, south-facing slope that makes sense because he's want to bed there anyway, makes sense from our ingress-egress and our dominant winds. And then we'll literally go in there, and I'll, I'll be like, and it's not the entire south-facing slope a lot of times. It's the exact point that he would want to bet on based off of, you know, terrain. You go there, you find beds. I mean, literally, it's just kind of simple. It's just looking at looking up at the sky and the south sky and trying to figure out what trees are robbing light from that one knob. You know, I'm a big proponent of like not just thickening the whole entire. It, it doesn't all need to be thickened. Thickening it in key locations, I think, can go further than just thickening a whole farm because then there's strategy behind it. And you know, there's some there's some things that we can talk about how that looks. Um, that we've been doing lately that I don't hear a lot of people talking about. You, you mentioned this idea of, of kind of thinking through where the bedding would be and how that would impact your food and how that would impact your, in, your, your entry and exit and, and winds and everything. Is there, is there a, when you're putting this plan together, when you're thinking through, you know, okay, where do we want things? How do we want things? Do you always start with, okay, bedding first and then how does bedding impact food? And then how does 
access get in between all those things or is it always different is some some properties you're thinking okay I don't know about betting, but I know that we're going to have to put food here and here, or I know we have to access from this side and, and that's going to dictate where we do all these other things. So I guess my, my question here is, do you always have an order where you try to plan out the connections between these things, or is it going to vary wildly? And how do you go about, you know, prioritizing those things? Uh, well, I, I think that every farm is totally different. I think Toby would agree with that. Some, I almost refer to it like as a canvas. So you're dealt a canvas to create, right? And, you know, that might be your, the, the timber canvas that's there to create something with. Um, they're all so different, you know. So you really got to get boots on the ground. And honestly, kind of my approach, and I'll tell people, look, I might say that some things that make no sense at all while we're here. But all of a sudden, it'll all start making sense. Because I got to see the farm. I got to feel the farm. And I'll throw ideas out, and it's kind of like this process I go through. And at the end of the day, I'll usually have this kind of light bulb moment where I think I've got it all, you know, all together. Until Toby comes and sees it and has a better idea about something, then we throw throw that away. And that's kind of the whole whitetail group mentality: is it's a group of of minds, um, kind of all putting it together on the canvas there to create something. I don't know if that answered answered that question, but they are definitely well, all it's, different, it's, right, Toby? It's it's always exciting when when Bobby and I walk a farm together or, you know, all three of us or Mark or Lee or somebody is we're together. And it seems like those are the most exciting ones because everybody's brain is going, you know, a hundred miles an hour and, and, and you're just spitting out your thoughts. And, and it's, it's just a really good, exciting thing. And, um, you know, every farm that you go into is like Bobby said, is so different there. You know, you're, I, you're asking for like a plan and there really isn't a plan because every farm kind of has a different flow. You know, it's got a different vibe and it's got a different objective and some farms have cover. So you don't need to create cover. Some farms have a ton of food already and you don't need the food or some farms have major access issues that need to be corrected or some farms may have a neighbor issue that needs to be corrected or, you know, you know, our, our, farm developments even go as far as renegotiation farming contracts because you need a guy that's easier to work with because it's better for your deer hunting or like it's the, the level of development i feel like what we do is so far beyond just somebody who's a food plot guy or somebody who can come in and manicure your farm and make it look like a golf course you know with selling real estate and stuff i get the advantage of being on you know more property in a month's time than guys will see in, in two lifetimes. And because of that, I get to compare, you know, properties to properties. And I've been on some farms that, you know, they should be on the cover of a, of a magazine just because they're so beautiful. And you, you go in there and everything is so manicured and trimmed and, but it's a terrible layout. It's a terrible deer hunting farm because you did all the things you thought you wanted to see but they're in the wrong places and the access is wrong and you're killing yourself, but you get to sit there and look at this real pretty farm, but you're not going to shoot any big deer on it. So it's just, there's just a lot of levels to, to what we do. And, um, like I said, we'd need three shows to probably cover all that <laughs> stuff, but yeah. So, so can you describe for me then Toby at, at uh, maybe, Maybe we need to just explore like a hypothetical example or an example of a place that you've done this yourself. But I'm curious if you can kind of walk me through how someone 
in, in, you know, if someone were trying to do this themselves, how you would recommend them trying to start thinking through how to analyze a property. Let's say they maybe they just picked up a farm, they bought a farm, or maybe they're considering buying a farm and they're sitting here and thinking, they're okay, what does this place need? How do I make this place better? Like what are the steps that you would recommend someone go through to start determining how to prioritize these things, you know, how to create that flow that you're talking about? Um, you know, and again, I know every farm's different. Every card, you know, every hand is different. Yeah. Um, but like what's the – what's Walk me through some kind of hypothetical process that someone should be thinking through as they're analyzing their place. Well, it's kind of like what Bobby opened with is, what's the purpose? What, do you, what are you developing it for? Are you developing it to be able to take your wife and your kids and your family out there and shoot 15 bucks a year off of it and have a great time? Or are you developing it because you're the only one that's going to hunt it? And it needs to be set up to shoot the biggest, most mature deer on a farm. So there's just a broad spectrum of why you're doing it so that we know how to do it. And that's kind of what, you know, with, with us doing the consulting as well, you're asked where to start. I would probably start with having Mark come out to your property and paying him to do a professional consult and then telling him in the beginning what the reasoning is for, for starting it. And then that's kind of how our process starts. Uh, and, and that and, would be and, if somebody's buying a farm and you're wanting help. It's different when we are buying them for ourselves. And obviously we're doing all that ourselves. And, and that honestly, that ironically, and I'm not one to hard sell or push. You've never seen any of us hard selling or anything on our videos. It's all really just follow us. It's free education and stuff. But the more and more we do these consults, uh, Mark Cluster goes out and does the on sites. And then I jump on Zoom to go over and weigh in. But it it is like it is truly amazing. I mean, people are spending a lot of money on a farm and the little bit extra to do something like that and have a, a group of co- of professionals kind of help like the value that's provided it is, it is so much fun. It's amazing to watch. I mean, like we did one a few weeks ago for a guy that's shot several 190 class deer and he was just looking for one little edge, but we do a lot of them for guys that, you know, they don't, they, they're very new and they, and it's just amazing to watch the fast track that they get. Um, you know, they're just so far out ahead. It's not a hard sell to get our consults, but like that was the first thing that popped in my head because it is like, it is so, it is incredibly helpful. Um, if, if you're going to do it on your own, like your uh, question originally asked, you know, I'd say, dive into a bunch of our videos and I get emails every day about, you know, how many ideas they had and thank you and this and that. And it's just, it's just a bunch of free education. Try and learn some concepts and theories, you know, learn theories about think like a deer, like big deer want a quarter into the wind as they're looking for does, you know, um, and try and set your farm up so that he always is feeling comfortable. He's feeling comfortable living there. He's feeling comfortable moving through there. Um, and you know, we're just, we're just trying to, I say, treat your farm like a glass house, you know, how do I hunt as little of it as possible, but hunt it effectively, you know, don't let them know you're there. We use all kinds of things you can see on our video strategies. We use lots of switchgrass and stuff. Um, not so much for bedding, like a lot of people want to think about it, but to take food or plates off of the table, force them to where we wanted 
have them create create uh, uh, design or shape of plots to create pinches, which concentrate scent. Where we put trecoys to up odds of deer being there. We use the grasses for ingress and perfect egress with a low box blind. We use the grass edge to be able to move that blind down the grass edge throughout the season as you mow corn. There's so many things. That, there's so many things I, I would say, watch our videos, watch other people's videos, learn, get as much information as you possibly can, and then just try to build your farm in a way that you can tiptoe around it and never be known that you were there or as close as possible as you can get to that. Yeah. Let's, High probability, low impact. Yeah. Yes. I always talk about risk reward. So like is diving into the hardwoods in the middle of October is the reward worth the risk? Well, probably not in most cases. Is it November 5th? Most likely, is it in November 5th if you've, you know, fell some some uh, less, you know, desirable trees and created, took that 50-yard gap and turned it into a 30-yard gap and they've got a deep ditch behind them and, you know, they have to come through there? Yes, the reward is worth the risk at a certain point, you know, so... Just and I call it like hunting defensively. So hunting offense, off, offensively would be like being ramming and charging in over here and and charging in over here and getting impatient and just hunting all over the place. Like you're on the offense. Hunting defensively is like no, I'm not going to hunt today because it's not right. No, I'm not going to go in there because it's not time. No, it's usually like less is more. You know, it's it's not some magic potion to be more successful. It's usually just being more patient. And, and hunting smarter and, and doing less, that makes sense. Is, is it your opinion, Bobby, that hunting defensively is the best approach just on private pieces like this that we're talking about where you can manage in some, to some degree, and then the more offensive style of hunting is the better approach when you're hunting highly pressured places, or is it more situation dependent than that? You know, I, I you got to use some common sense, but... I tend to just stay, stay in my lane, think like a deer and me versus the deer. I, I tend, you know, to like, for example, this year, I, I still, even though we, you know, this business has grown into something I never imagined, could have imagined. I still run a trail camera on every nook and cranny that I can to find a big deer. Cause that's, that's the key is you gotta, you gotta have, you gotta have one to kill one. Um, the farm I hunted on this year, I shot a big deer, um, he was, he officially scored 196, but it was probably 20 acre area. And I hunted it last year as well. And, um, I killed a big one in there last year. Well, there was, there was, you know, 10 tree stands on this property, uh, in that 20 acre area I was hunting, there was probably four or five other ones from other people hunting. There was trail cams all over the place. And I just, I just kind of stuck to my principles and, and, and hunted the deer i knew him from the last year so i knew kind of what he was going to do you know same date same place type concept and so um you know i'd say even if even if there's other people hunting or there's pressure or whatever just you know you got to learn to think like a deer that's what one thing amazing about mark luster when he's doing our consoles is he's a master of thinking like a deer and that's why you know he, he does such a great job um doing our consoles is because it all he he first before they even get started on the farm, he's teaching them these principles about a deer and how they live and how they, how they move about. 
so that then when he starts designing and talking about setups, they can understand the principles, you know, behind those setups, not just, oh, let's throw a food pot here because, you know. Yeah. Uh, let, let's dive into that a little bit further, this idea of of thinking like a deer and then building or creating or preserving, you know, this, this, this glass house or whatever this perfect situation would be so that a mature buck feels super comfortable. And let's start, you know, in the place he spends probably more time than anywhere else, which is his bed, his bedroom, his, his, the core of his core of his core. Uh, you alluded to this a little bit, Bobby, with some of the things you guys are doing. How are you, how are you guys thinking about buck bedding areas and creating bedding areas and what are the things that need to be done to make sure that a mature buck or as many possible mature bucks feel comfortable within your property and whatever bedding areas you have? What are some of those key things that you are, you know, making sure you have or making sure you create? Right. Well, it's kind of back to that nature preserve um, public land analogy there, which goes back to pressure. If you give deer no pressure, they big bucks love wide open hardwoods if there's no pressure because they can see and they can get out of there quickly back to that deer i shot this year those woods uh, you know i could uh, it was why it was just wide open that the deer i shot the year before he was probably seven and he when i after i killed him well the deer i killed killed was five and uh, after I killed him, the neighbors sent me some pictures and they said, hey, congratulations on killing DK. And I said, what's DK? And they said, dark night. We call him dark night because we never saw him. Yet I got a lot of daylight pictures of him and stuff. And the difference was it was it was just a 20 acre area that he grew up and spent a lot of time. Uh, that There was no pressure in there. And so, you know, he, he there's there's two pressures like you have to give them safety to live their life to their so they get to the point where we want to hunt them and they're not going to tolerate, you know, you know, human intrusion and activity over the years. But then once they get to that age, it can be hard to kind of run them off. You know what I mean? So like I had all kinds of bonehead mistakes I made last year. There was, this is kind of getting confusing because there was two big deer I was hunting. One of them I hit, one of them I ended up killing, but the one I hit was probably 190. And, um, that deer, I mean, I, I made five, six, seven, eight mistakes. I mean, he winded me. I, I missed him. I hit him. And uh, he just would not leave because he spent seven years in an area and he was that age. And it was hard. It was hard to run him out of there. And people, I, I don't think people realize that. You know, a lot of people think of them as like unicorns, you know, like one mistake and they're gone. Well, once they get to a certain point, it can be hard to run them out but you have to give them that security over the long haul to call home to where they, they become that big buck. And so what that looks like starts with pressure. All everything I just said, I guess gets back to pressure regardless of the habitat. So you have to have a place you're going to give them security. Um, and then what that looks like in my, in my eyes, instead of going into an area where we have a south facing slope, you know, that makes sense. It's tucked in. It's not going to be affected by our ingress, egress, dominant winds rather than go back there and just, you know, if let's say our logging division is going in there, rather than go in there and hammer the woods and make a clear cut essentially or whatever, we'll just kind of do a healthy select cut 
And then, like I said, we'll pick that one spot. It's like, where would the biggest buck in the woods want to live we'll, or lay? Well, probably right there on that point because he can see everything. And sure enough, you go up there, there's beds. And then we just start, you know, trying to open up the sunlight to hit that exact spot. And now you have some strategy because if you got a food plot 100 yards down that ridge and you get consistent pictures, you can start kind of, you know, telling um, where he's coming from or whatever, and you can kind of guess that he's on the point. However, I think that creating just bedding areas in general can be more impactful to your hunting strategy than trying to make a quote bedding, a buck bed bedding area or whatever. And this is kind of why. So we've all come up to like a, a deadfall or a tree in the woods and you've got, you know, a quarter acre of, of, of briars and stuff that exploded because there was like one or two trees that got blown over in a windstorm. And sure enough, there's beds in that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we can, start trying to create these pockets that make sense for egress um, and a hunting setup. Like let's say we, we can slip in this ravine in the rut and we can get up. There's a draw that goes up to this flat and they're going to pinch around the top of it anyway. And there's a, so we go up there, we find a tree stand or a tree and we start laying it out around that tree. And then we would, we would open up that pocket of light in front of that tree, but we would make sure to do it in a way that, there was a path of least resistance in all that mess that we created between us and the stand about 20 yards. And we figured it all out, you know, to let's say hunt a Southwest wind. What we're doing is we're creating a destination, kind of like a kill plot. We're creating a destination in the woods for a buck to go to, to look for a doe in the rut. And that's, and what happens is if you think like a deer and he wants to be on the downwind side of that, half acre thicket you made or quarter acre thicket or whatever he's going to go to it and in theory he's going to be on the downwind side of it and when he does that he's now going to put himself at 15 yards or 20 yards because he's trying to stay in the path of least resistance on the downwind side of that and it just so happens that there's a huntable tree there because you built it around that and there's a ditch behind it that gave you as good of access to get to that point as possible and you create two or three or four of those around your farm, now you've got some strategy because those become even more more powerful than like a kill plot because a kill plot, like I look at kill plot as a scent concentrator. It's a place a big buck wants to go to and pick up scent from a doe. However, it's a lot more powerful in the rut when he could be out at any given time of the day. It's a lot more powerful when that destination is, is in the woods and it happens to be a point, place where the does are at all day long and you could have a big deer get up on his feet and go like connect the dots and he could hit every one of those little patches in one walk in a matter of 10 minutes and every single one of them he'd be boom downwind 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 and when you lay them out around that stand and that pinch that's already there you have strategy really powerful strategy i think more powerful than even you know hunting a food plot in the rut yeah. So instead of a kill plot, well, you've got to, yeah, it, it makes a lot of it's sense. It's almost like a kill bedding area. Yeah. Like a kill thicket or and something. You're thinking, you're thinking like a deer and it's not like a lot of people want to talk about buck bedding areas. It's not like, so if you think about like, okay, I'm going to go hunt a buck in this bedding area. And again, there's no right and wrong. Different people have different approaches, but like, you know, to me that's hit or miss, you know, it's like, I'm going to go back in there 
chance blowing him out when I get in there, even in the dark. And then if he's not there at daylight, you know, maybe he'll come, maybe he won't. But if I can get into a patch that becomes a destination in the rut when the risk reward is worth going back in there and be like, I don't care where he is right now because this is a spot he's going to come. Yeah. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. So these, you know, kill plots, when we're making kill plots, I'm usually thinking about something small, something that has a specific size or, or design to it to give me the best possible shot opportunities. Uh, so 
when it comes to your kill bedding area, your kill thicket, whatever you want to call it, how big do you like these to be typically, give or take? And then what's the design? Do you like it long and skinny to try to keep them within range? Or, or how do you try to ideally shape and design? And, and even what's the actual act of how you create it too? You know, it's it might be a little looser than like, you know, everyone's a little bit different, I guess. Um, how do I explain it? Uh, I think smaller is better. You know what I mean? Like if you're thinking like a deer and there's, you're in these hardwoods and there's one brushy knob over there, you're going to go check that for a doe because you can't really see in it. You know, I almost think the smaller is, is better, but it kind of is relative to the type of woods you're in. If you have wide open hardwoods, you know, and you have a little, if you have one blowdown on a point and the rest is wide open, it's going to be a piece of structure that a du- you know a buck is going to maybe go to to mm-hmm. look for a doe against it. And like I did a bunch of I did some logging up there on Lee Lakoski's and he was big on that. Like in this one wood lot, he just wanted to put some, some tops on the ground to give them structure, you know, to to bed up against, you know. So it's kind of like it sounds crazy, but it's almost like fish relating to structure. They yeah. do the same thing. You know what I mean? So I don't think huge is good. I think, well, I think, I think just having them to where they're huntable and we could get into that in the food plots. We, we can take a five acre standing grain plot, oversee the entire thing with rye and make it huntable with woven wire fence or different things like that to create pinches. It's kind of the same deal. It's situational. You just want to be able to hunt it. So if you got a wicked pinch point already in those woods or whatever it is, it can be bigger because you're forcing them, you know, through what's already naturally a a funnel. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Uh, Toby, would you add anything on, on this before I take it a step further? Well, it's kind of, you know, getting into the pinch points and the shapes, food plots and all that stuff. I mean, it's kind of, we say this a lot in some of our videos. It's most of the time we're just enhancing an area or something that deer's already using or a place that they already want to be in, you know, and then you're attaching strategy to that spot. You're, it's not about just installing a food plot and looking pretty. It's how that food plot flows. How do you get into it without being seen? How do you get out of it without being seen? And then shaping it in a way that the deer you're, you're actually telling the deer exactly what openings to come in and out of and using debris to, funnel traffic and building woven wire fences it's like there's so much micro strategy that goes into each bedding area or each food plot that gets created it's like that's where you know we're kind of taking it to the next level and that elite deer hunting experience thing kind of comes into play again yeah so like for for an example i was uh i was out on um greg ritz's place a few weeks ago and they had a point that they had um and we were just kind of all like putting our minds together we were looking at doing a logging project and uh, they had a point that they had done a a big hinge cut you know tsi type stuff and you know how a lot of times when you hinge and and it kind of plays into that whole strategy i was talking about when you hinge and you got all those trees laying down like yeah they'll go out in it to bed but as far as a buck cruising you know through it he's definitely going to be on the downwind side because it's an entangled you know, mass to go walk through. So we got to this point 
you know, that they had, they had done basically a, a, a hinge cut on. We basically kind of put our heads together and came up with this concept. There was a perfect gift from above of a white oak that was on the, it was on the downwind side with a north wind. Um, and it had, it had really good access to it in the morning. And, uh, it was just a simple, like, Hey, why don't you guys take some chainsaws and, and go through here 15 yards, 20 yards in front of the stand and just, just chunk these things up just enough to get your skid steer grapple to go down there and pick it up and back out. So in other words, you were left with this clean lane right in front of your, your stand, you know, right through that mess of hinge cut that was about an acre big, but still on the downwind side. And now, and then put a hemp rope right, right in front of you. Cause there's going to be a massive concentration of scent on that, that kind of roadway, if you will, that you're building through your, your hinge cut. And, and then that, like he just talked about in the micro strategy, you know, we talk every, about everything in macro strategy and micro strategy. That's your last layer. So like I talk about it, like it's like a, your overall strategy is kind of like, like a game of Jenga, right? And every, every block is like a layer of strategy, right? And sure enough, it's the last stupid thing you didn't do that ends up, we've all done it. You know, it's like, you know, <laughs> yes. you forget to, it's just the one stupid thing that you don't have an extra release in your pack. It, it, it's something like that. It's that one last layer of strategy that can make or break you. And so, you know, by putting that hemp rope on that road, where there's a place they're going to want to scrape anyway, because there's a concentration of scent, which we can get into in a little bit, but it just ups the odds that he stops right there. You know what I mean? And gives yeah. you a, a broadside shot. So that was, kind of, that's kind of an example of one of those, you know, it's, you're taking something that's, you know, TSI and you're, 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 you're connecting the strategy with the habitat work, if that makes sense. Yeah. It makes, makes a lot of sense. And nothing works without strategy. It's like not in in the food pots where you go down that hole here in a minute, but it's all about strategy. Food plots are, I mean, I'll plant whatever you want to plant. It's 95% strategy it's how you it's probably starting with the most important part is egress and then ingress and then you know shape creating a pinch point creating a transition between two different types of food sources in order to up probability of concentrating does which ups probability of concentrating scent which ups probability of whether there's deer in the field or not that he comes to bow range you know there's just so many like layers that you start compounding and just shooting probability through the roof. Cause when we see a big deer, we're already like odds are so low that they just walk so few days in daylight. We need to stack odds to where when we see them, we can shoot them. We don't just see them. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. It's the, this is the fun stuff in my mind is, is yeah. going deep into that strategy. Um, a couple more things on the on the betting improvements here because I I'm geek I'm really enjoying this part. This is interesting. Yep. Take taking that same detailed approach that that folks are doing on the food side and applying it to your betting areas and making them, you know, these these very huntable in the timber betting locations. Uh, question about you know you've got these small kind of micro betting areas that become more huntable because of that size, and you mentioned having these throughout your property. Can you have too many? 
is there is there the risk of them losing their effectiveness if you have so many of these that it becomes less predictable or, or you know can you have them too close together or is there any other thing like that that you're thinking about when designing these kinds of improvements as far as how many yeah. of them connecting them anything like that and back to the one size fits all i don't want people thinking like every farm we just do this exact thing on it it's not like that some don't lean themselves towards it some do i would say the answer to that question is i i don't think you could have too many as long as they stay huntable and accessible and the concept of of a pinch and a huntable tree being on the downwind side of that thicket. I don't think you're going to find enough spots that warrant that risk reward and that setup. I don't think you're going to find enough spots in order to make too many of them, if that makes sense. Okay. Pinches. You mentioned pinches there again. I feel like that's something you guys really, really key in and across many parts of your properties in the timber, in the food plots, you guys are always creating pinches or finding pinches and enhancing them. Can you elaborate a little bit on these in the timber pinches that you are either trying to take advantage of already or creating, you know, inside or downwind of these bedding areas? How do you guys do that? What are you looking for? I don't want to steal the mic, but I'll probably take this one too. Cause I, I, I run the logging division. And so we do a lot of this. That, that cool, Toby? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so, um, oh man, this is, a, this is a good one. We kind of have become known for the walls. We talked about the walls. You probably heard us talking about them in, yeah. in, in our, you know. So, you know, a lot of the big walls you see, that's during an excavation project. Like we're actually clearing food pot. We'll use the debris to create these pinches and these walls that also serve as access. And they end up growing up just, you can't even see them after a year or so. They just look like a berm with stuff shooting out of them. Um, then, and a lot of times when I go on a logging project, they're wanting us to build walls all over the place, but they don't realize that's, that's more excavation. What we can do during the logging project is, you know, I'll give you a good example. We're logging for a, a, a guy right now um, up in Fulton County, and he, we're kind of doing some of this around a specific deer. Um, but he had this kind of bowl, big bowl of big mature hardwoods had a point that kind of came out facing southerly. It's on a bluff. It's like the most obvious spot in the world for deer to just be loaded up, bedded all over in, in this bowl. And so, and we're the left side of that tongue, the left gut of that tongue went up to the top of the hill. It came up to a flat and then you had about 50 yards to the neighbors there was a crop field. And I'm like, man, we cut this bowl and we create a pinch right here. This deer is going to put all this cover, all this new, you know, where these does are going to be loaded up. He's going to put all this on the downwind side of them. And there's already somewhat of a funnel up here, but we can, we can directional fall these tops in here into this ravine. And we can kind of, we can create a, a wall of these treetops going up the hill to the top and then stop it, lay it all out around this hackberry. And then there's enough like deadfalls up there. We'll just scoop them up with the skid steer and the skitter. And we'll make another wall from that hackberry back to the field. So we created basically, you know, a 25 yard gap on the downwind side of essentially like a, I would say probably a 10 acre area that could hold beds, but we made a wicked huntable 
because that wall where it ended at the top of the hill where it started going down with all those tops in it, I mean, that wall is probably 100 yards long going down through there. So now, like, when he wants to put all that on this down, you know, when he wants to be upwind of all that stuff and Andy's going to take the path of least resistance, we're forcing him through a gap, you know, and we're up high where our wind is, is consistent, you know. Um, so that's kind of how we use a logging project to build pinches in the woods. Like you can either directional fall those trees or we can pull the tops a little bit with the skitters, but only so far. Cause it's picturing like big giant wrecking balls. Like we can, we can take a 50 yard gap and turn it into a 30 yard gap pretty easily during the logging project. Um, we also can use woven wire fence there's different you can implement the same strategy so many ways like ben rising he's in the logging industry too and he's a he'll he'll drop you know kind of the same type of species trees that you would girdle or inch cut anyway he'll drop some bigger more mature trees in order to create those same types of pinches so there's a lot of ways of going about it but it, all, any way you you use to pinch deer you're exponentially upping your odds i mean think about it you hunt the whole rut and your target deer, you see him what, two, three times? Well, how, what does your probability look like when you've taken a spot where it's a hundred yard area he could come through and you've cut it down to a 30 yard area? Like your, your odds go through the roof. Yeah. Now, what about the opposite? So you kind of alluded to this already in one of the earlier examples, but so you just, you just talked about like building blockades, walls, different things that pinch them, you know, into a place you want them. It, it sounds like sometimes though the opposite can be effective too, which is opening up a place for them to go through that's all already blocked. Is that something that you're, you know, doing as well? Yep. Like that. And that's why, that's where we talk about every situation is different. Like sometimes we're taking away cover. Like, like we have a video coming out pretty soon here that uh, me Mark Luster and Ben Rising all did a console and it, the, we wanted to do it for fun because it's like to listen to everybody's kind of thought process behind the same spot. And then you, you end up at a, you know, a bigger, a more powerful, you know, uh, plan for that spot than you could have with just one mind. Well, there, we kind of like jam session on this one spot. I, I said what I do. And then Ben turned around, he did something completely opposite then we kind of hashed it out and Mark was like agreeing with both of us. Well, at the end of the day, we implemented both, both strategies, both, both things. Ben's was kind of idea was more set up for a specific window of the deer season, a specific mindset. And then I was like, well, yeah, that's awesome. Why don't we take the mulching head, go straight down this Creek bottom. that's super thick that way and straight down it this way. And Mark's like, yeah, let's put a woven wire fence from that tree back to the Creek. And then, like you just said, we're creating a path of least resistance through this thick stuff, upping our odds that they step out where we want them to step out. Yeah. So you can reverse engineer it a lot of times, um, you know, by taking away. It's just the canvas that you're dealt. Mm-hmm. Toby, would you yeah, add anything else? That, yeah, touching on that path of least resistance, you know, we talked about the benefits of the logging project and stuff here several times. Another big benefit is, you know, the road system that you create during the logging project. You know, that's not always in the common sense places that they would do during a normal logging project. That's part of the strategy as well. 
you're going to go in there and make roads anyway to get the timber out. So you, you place these roads in, in the best spots for uh, access. And then you also use them to program the deer on how they're going to move through that property and how they're going to check each bedding area and how they're going to enter and exit each food plot. So, you know, the clearing areas is kind of the same thing as putting these roadways in, you know, and making creek crossings. You know, you got a lot of these properties have steep creek banks and, you know, these deer, they like to, they like to use the easier spot. So you can use a logging project and the excavating project to put the nice gradual crossings and the deer end up pounding. So it's like, you know, you're, you're programming, you know, and not only will the bucks that are already there and big start using them because the does will be using them. And again, concentration is set. When the does start using these roads as their main travel corridors, the bucks are going to start using the, the roads because the does are there. And we've got several video clips of, you know, 10, 12 does in a row, single file right down the logging road. And then here's the buck right behind them. I mean, they're like us when they, Generally, when they move through a piece of property, you know, they, they like to take the, the easiest path to get to where they're going, whether it's bedding and feeding. And, you know, on my personal farms, we've done several of those, too. It's like the most beneficial thing that I think is the road systems. Like, that's that's my personal opinion is, is you could eventually shoot every buck on the farm out of the right road intersections in the right place on the property. Another one that comes to mind is the Montgomery piece. I mean, that was that was an awesome example of what the roads can do on a big piece of ground. Yep. Yep. And sometimes, like you said, sometimes those roads, it's all, it's all strategy. You know, sometimes that road, instead of going down the, the center of a, a ridge, like it, it would be, you know, in the traditional logging project, it might be on the side hill in order to have good ingress, egress to something where you don't want the deer on the next ridge overseen. And a lot of times, you know, we might have to use the the upper the that original skitter trail up top just because it's drier and stuff. But if it's part of the plan and it makes it better, and that's what we're trying to accomplish through the logging project, before we leave, we will cut that road, you know, on the lower side. But when you have the when you got the timber project there, it gets all the equipment there, and you can start doing, you know, you can start implementing. Um, you know, a lot of the hunting strategy, I always say like the logging project is like the, it's, it's like, it's like you're building the house, you know, the, the plan, you gotta have a plan first. That'd be, you know, studying up, kind of coming up with your plan, doing consult, whatever you gotta do, you gotta have the plan. It's like trying to build a, 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 a masterpiece house without a blueprint. And then, uh, and then the foundational part of it would be, you know, the logging project, uh, or excavation project or whatever, the nice thing about the logging project is it funds the project, you know? So, um, but that, that's where you're kind of roughing in, trying to get these deer to bed in these certain spots. We can open up plots in these certain spots and we can put these roads in certain spots. Sometimes those roads will have them come off, you know, we'll, we'll just put a Creek crossing in a certain spot relative to a certain stand you know, so that we have that path of least resistance in the rut right in front of a stand. So again, it kind of comes back to there's no, there's no rigid, uh, uh, you know, set of guidelines, but the, the, like the logging project is just a tool to be able to, to be able to implement a lot of these concepts and strategies. 
Yeah. You know, like on that, we did a Fulton County, big Fulton County farm for you know, what we did for Steve. You know, we had a big, fairly open block of timber and the most noticeable terrain feature and kind of what really funneled most of the deer traffic was a huge ravine that went straight down the middle of that block of timber. So when we were doing the, the select cut in there, we put a huge giant culvert pipe in the middle of that ravine in the middle of that woodlot and made a big flat crossing. And then we connected all the roads from the timber project, like a spider web down there to this one crossing and created this super pinch point in the middle of what was a super wide open piece of woods just by putting a culvert pipe in there and doing a little excavating. I mean, and it was a crazy good spot. Yeah. yeah I think I remember seeing that. So, so my one, I don't know if it's a question or if it's like a worry, but I, I wonder for, for people that don't have a logging project or don't have the valuable timber to make this a cost effective thing. And they're thinking, man, I'd love to make big roads. I'd love to create these better crossings and different things, but I just don't have the way to either hire someone to come in and do this stuff. And I don't have the timber to fund it. Um, is there like a budget version of this? Is it, it, can you do some version of this by renting a skid steer for a day or two and making some miniature trails and crossings and things like that? Like, is there some kind of, you know, junior way to achieve some of these things in in your mind, Toby? Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of, of tools at your fingertips, whether it's renting equipment or, you know, know, having somebody help you with the plan part of it. And then, implementing it yourself over time you know you don't need to jump in there and do it all in one shot and then that way you can kind of stretch the cost and the effort out over a couple years um yes to answer your question yes there's a way to do it um and that's where it goes back to not every property needs a huge excavator or needs a bulldozer or needs a logging and skidders or something it's you know every piece of ground is it's 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 its own animal yeah. And and you know, to expound, expound upon that, like back what I first said, a good plan and a good strategy may not need a whole lot. Like those those creating those destination like doe bedding type areas I was talking about, you can do that just by going out and 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 you know girdling and and hinge cutting trees and putting trees on the ground in little areas. I mean, so it, it doesn't it doesn't require this big, massive, you know, orchestration, but another thing about that is like, and that's kind of part of the value we're providing. We're out here in the game. We're buying, you know, we're buying, we have to buy the farm, right. But we have a list of people that are having us help them find farms. And a lot of times, once we find a farm, get it under contract, you know, we'll already have somebody that's been waiting on that exact farm, then we will actually implement that project and, and we will involve them. So like if let's say they're a non-resident in Iowa and they want to develop it for late season, we'll actually, as part of the deal, we'll, we will do all of that stuff you're talking about. So, you know, at first it might sound like, well, this is far fetched. We're not really, you know, the average guy can't do this. Well, we're actually, you know, we sell farms to, school teachers, all kinds of different people we've dealt with. And we're actually doing a lot of this on the front end with alongside of them, you know, to help them uh, get and create a farm like this. Cause some people don't have the know-how, but some people don't have, you know, 
the machinery. Some people, you know, everybody's a little bit different, but we kind of work together as a, as a team to like that farm. He was just talking about Steve, you know, we built that whole thing for him, you know, he paid market value for that farm. Yeah. Yeah. You guys have got it figured out because uh, not only do, do you get to, you know, be on the side of, of buying and selling these places, but you get to do the fun stuff on a lot of them too. The, the actual work and the improving. And I mean, that's, that's, at least for me, that's the the real joy of the stuff is the projects and seeing it all come together. Um, so yep. that's pretty good. And way like to do I it. said, back to the back to the consulting stuff. That's been really fun for me lately because you know at night I'll get on one an hour long, watching, like helping these people. Like I I keep telling them like a lot of them have a big deer. You know we're kind of we're developing it, but we're kind of developing some things around a big deer. We're like call send trail cams. We'll help you. You know we'll put our minds together and figure out how to kill this deer. And like, I tell them I'm, I'm literally like hunting vicariously through you now, like <laughs> because we're on so much ground now, it's just odds and probability. We're seeing, you know, this guy's got this big special deer and this guy's got this big special deer and me, Bobby Kendall, I can only find, it's hard to find them. You know what I mean? So, so it's like we're hunting vicariously through these guys and it's just so much fun to watch watch them you know be successful and help them help them be successful that that guy we were just talking about steve uh we did a video around that whole project and then uh, he and then we put the video out and then he's like oh by the way i didn't know if i sent you this and he sent a picture he shot like 180 something inch deer and we're like should have sent that before we edited the video <laughs> um yeah, but, um, yeah, yeah it, that'd be nice to see and then we had a guy this year toby over there in fulton county Sending, and he was pretty new hunter, right, Toby? He sent pictures yeah. of Toby of a 200-inch deer, like, getting them pictures of him, like, every day. He's like, I don't know what to do. He's like, just get in the box. <laughs> <laughs> and that was another example. That particular gentleman there was the same same kind of a deal. You know, we bought that farm and just had barely started development. And then as, we're, as it, we, we had the first couple phases of video out, you know, this guy kind of, was looking for a real high quality farm in that area. And he bought that farm, you know, off of us before that project was done and kind of jumped in on the backside of it. And then first time he goes up there and hunts it, he's got this gigantic deer running around and he's texting us back and forth. What do I do? Where do I sit? You know, here's where I got his pictures. And, you know, then it's just super exciting just to watch and to hear somebody's enthusiasm about, you know, the farm that they bought and helped develop. And it's, you know, it's, it's a very exciting, rewarding kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, so speaking of, uh, you know, telling that guy, Hey, jump in the box. Um, let's, let's shift from the timber out towards our food sources. Uh, you know, from seeing the guys, the things you guys have done and what you've talked about is you design these different properties. I know there's like everything, there's strategy behind how you place your plots and how you design your plots to, to achieve the kind of movement you guys want. Toby, can you start maybe by walking me through some of the things you're thinking about when deciding how to place your plots on a property and how you design them? Um, what does that planning process look like specifically on the food plot side, the food side of this equation? Well, it, it goes right back to pressure again. You know, how can you hunt these spots consistently and not blow deer out of there every time you're, you're coming and going? So, and this was kind of on a consult that me and, uh, Bobby and Mark did yesterday, we were talking about something just like this. And, you know, I refer back to a, a big acreage piece that, that, that I have personally. 
And I, I told Mark, I said, you know, I got a, I got a farm that's almost 500 acres here in, in Adams County, Illinois. I said, oh, we've got it so fine tuned and so set up and the strategy so right on it that we hunted out of three food plots with three box blinds, 500 acres. That's it. You know, and it's, it's, that's all about having that, that premium spot with a set tight box blind and the right way to get in and out of there without spooking everything. And you just watch your cameras and you, you keep the pressure low and we will kill our target deer on that farm out of one of those three box blinds like clockwork every year and never have to step foot in the woods. Can you, can you walk me through an example of one of those setups, like just in detail, kind of how you actually achieve what you just described? So we got one food plot, I call it the South plot. And, um, we've got a certain area that you're able to park a vehicle in a low spot, stay out of sight. There's a certain role in the field for access that you can get in. There's a little waterway to get on the other side. So you've made it all the way to the box, but you've parked your vehicle, you're get ready. You've walked all the way to the backside of the box without any detection at all. So that's step one. You're in there. And then when you have a field full of deer and you didn't shoot something and you need to get back to your truck, you repeat that process. So you've solved the in and the out without blowing the place up every time you're in there. So that's step one. Then you have the plot. I always like to do grain to green because then you have something in its prime for every phase of the season. So we have to do them big. So we only have three plots on that big of a piece of ground with that kind of deer density. You have to take that into consideration as well, because you can't go through all that effort and all that time and then end up in your prime hunting season that you have no tonnage of food left. So that has to be something you assess too, is your deer numbers and, and is there going to be anything left when you want to be there hunting it? So we've got two or three acres of standing grain, and then we've got the plot shaped in such a way that the, the green that's on the other side of it comes together at the pinch point right where the grain, because these deer, when they come out, they'll bounce back and forth from grain to green usually. And you kind of want your, your highest probability spot to be in that narrow point of the food plot on the transition from grain to green. And like Bobby talked about before, you know, if that's that field shape happens to put that at 60 or 70 yards, you could actually take fence or tops or some kind of a structure, hay bales, you could stack hay bales and pinch that 60 acre spot down to 30. And then on top of that, in that 30 acre, 30 yard gap, you could put a tree coil with a hemp rope and a, and a, and a licking branch. Now you've enhanced it even more. And then, you know, Bobby's big advocate of this too. He'll actually go around the perimeter of that food plot and cut off all of the low hanging scrape branches, licking branches so that they become dependent on those one or two tree coys that you've got out in the food plot, which are all in bow range of your hunting position. And a must, again, in my opinion, is a set tight box blind. You sit there with the window shut until it is time to open it and shoot whatever it is you're trying to kill. Because that, you know, you create these spots and these primo food plots and you've paid attention to every detail. And, you know, what's going to happen in those type plots is you're going to have 30 or 40 or 50 deer out in that kind of a place before your target animal walks out. So when you're trying to do that in a situation where you're sitting in a tree stand, then the wind's going to swirl. Those thermals start to cool and it starts to do some goofy stuff. You're not getting away with that most of the time. 
So that box blind, that scent type box blind becomes a very important tool in that kind of a hunting situation where you're going to have massive amounts of deer coming to your location. So you've solved the getting smelled part. You've, you've paid attention to the shape of that food plot. You've got grain for late season. You've got green for early season. And you've got the correct way to get in and out of there without blowing it up every time. And then you just repeat that in the different zones of your farm um, as the opportunity allows for, you know, and, and working with your farmers is pretty key too. You've got to have the ability to buy back those crops or plant them on your own because you, you know, you got to have both types of food in those kind of hunting situations. When it comes to the grains and the greens, Toby, do you have, do you have a preference? Do you prefer, you know, do you prefer beans over corn? Does it shift based on specifics as far as the greens? What are the greens you like to plant? Um, can you give me some more detail of what you found to work the very best for you at least? Well, on that kind of a plot, you know, we like to have clover, fairly big green plot with the clover mix in it. And then in a situation where you've got standing beans in one year, you know, when those leaves start to turn yellow on the beans, you know, most of us will we'll go out there and sling rye and turnips and radish out in the standing beans. And usually you'll at least have the tonnage of the leaves coming up, even if they don't put on a bulb. So now you've got standing beans. Underneath your standing beans, you've got rye and turnips coming up. And then next door, you got lush clover. So you're just giving them, you're throwing a smorgasbord at them. And you can even do that overseeding into standing corn plots as well. And then, you know, so when you got standing corn and you start to mow that corn, you obviously start mowing it from your pinch point so that the first mow, everything's in bow range. The second mow, everything's in bow range. You know, by then you're getting into November and you're <clears throat> starting to stretch it out there a little bit. You're coming into your first gun season. You've got 125, 50 yards you can shoot. Like, so you're paying attention to the times of year you want to hunt and what you're using to hunt during those times of years. And you're just adjusting your plot as the season goes on. And the beauty of the box blinds is if you've got a situation where you have really high deer numbers and they are just pounding stuff, you may have to scoop that box blind up and move it a little bit to keep up with, you know, how hard they're hitting your food. So you're always in the hot zone of the plot. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, one follow-up real quick, Toby, on the the design of this. You mentioned, you know, trying to have some kind of pinch within it so you could have, you know, a 60-yard wide gap that maybe you pinch down further with, you know, some additional treetops, hay bales, whatever. Uh, but have you found – now, I know every property is going to give you something slightly different to work with as far as the space and everything. But all things being equal, is there any kind of specific design or shape that you prefer when trying to create a setup like this, do you prefer long and skinny or like a boomerang that gives you that fulcrum that you use as a pinch or anything else like or hourglass? Um, is there anything you found to be your favorite design or shape or something for a starting point I mean, for folks to consider? To, you want to try, try to not make it so big or shaped that you there's parts of it you can't hunt. You know, you're, you're doing it to be able to, to shoot the deer off of that place. So, when you design them, you want to try to keep it in mind that, you know, if I'm going to hunt here, you know, if it's here in Illinois and you can help with shotgun or muzzleloader, you know, if I'm hunting this plot late season, I really want to make sure that anything that steps in this plot, I can shoot. So 150 to 200 yards at the furthest, you know, if you're primarily a bow hunter, you want to kind of squeeze that stuff down even a little bit further, you know, and that's kind of where 
where moving the box comes in too, if you're primarily a bow hunter and you know, the deer, when they come out of the woods, if they're coming from a certain way, they're generally going to start at that end of the plot and start eating their way out to the center. So you can adjust your box blind to always stay up in, in the part of the grain that you still have tonnage left in. You know, so it is kind of different because it, you're going to have to work with what kind of space that you've been given. If it's on an ag area or a CRP area that you're only allowed a certain amount of acreage to use. But, you know, I like to make sure that everything revolves around. I'm not doing this. I'm not going to do all this work just to sit there and watch deer that I don't have an opportunity yet. So shape and distance has to come into play because, you know, you want to up your odds to having a shot opportunity at that deer when he comes out. Yeah. So if you're making them too long and skinny or too big, you're, it's just going to be a wildlife viewing session. Sometimes when you're in there, you really don't want to do that. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. 
Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Bobby, what's your take on all this um, as far as. Oh, the- man. <laughs> I should have been writing down. <laughs> I should have been writing down all the rabbit holes I wanted to go down. What's been bursting uh, out of the seams for it that you really want to say? Uh, well, he pretty much hit on all of it. So, I might go down a couple of little rabbit holes here and there. First thing I would say. It's for guys that are listening that are like, well, this is like kind of out of reality for me because I can't do this. We got a video. It's called Face. I think it says Face to Face with the Monster. It's a big deer I hunted last year on, on permission piece. And I just simply went to the farmer. I negotiated to buy an acre of corn. I mowed the corn. I mowed it in a specific shape. I took all my leftover food plot seed and put it on there like a smorgasbord, all my you know um, cereal grains and my, and my brassicas. Just threw it all out there, greened up a little bit. I I ran through that corn each direction of, to where I thought he was coming from, to where he popped out where I wanted him to come out. Like so, I implemented some of these strategies on a piece that was permission. Then I negotiated something with the farmer. So there are ways of doing some of this stuff, even if you can't do it. And I actually love. Yeah working with farmers because it's so much easier like the bigger this has gotten i try and work smarter not hard um so that's one thing i would say another thing bobby sorry really really quick before you go any further i gotta ask one question on that topic uh working with farmers do you have any any advice for people oh yeah uh, trying to do that because that's something i've considered but i have never done it and i don't know the right way to approach it how to the right way to offer to pay for it how to you know how do you do that the right way bobby Yes, sir. So ironically, we actually have a leasing program now on our, on our, our platform, on our, um, on our page that we partnered with a company that offers like, um, we can basically help people put their tillable out to lease to a farmer in an auction style format. And it gets, you know, uh, it's just awesome. It, it jacks your, your cash rents way up. But the thing is we help the person negotiate their farming contract to where, it gets all the bells and whistles that they, that help them as a farm manager or hunting farm manager, you know, uh, do as little work as, as possible and, and put more of it on the farmer. The, and there's a lot of different things in, in the, that lease that we use and stuff. There's little things you'd never think of, but as far as buying back crop, you don't want to really get into doing it the way that I did it in, in that example I was talking about where you're, you're paying after the fact when it's your field, you essentially want to do a cash rent per acre, have the right to buy back two acres of crop. They'd be credited their cash rent on that two acres. And all you will pay is their input cost. You have the leverage to negotiate that on the front end. However, if you haven't negotiated it, you're sitting there paying, uh, you know, $1,600 an acre right now for corn instead of, you know, 400. Okay. So there, there's ways about that. And that's something that we can help people do. And we can, we can hook them up with our contracts and stuff. There's a lot of other little things like, you know, farmer doesn't have the right to chisel plow the field without written permission um, until end of deer season. But 
you know, sometimes in your strategy, you might, you might want them to chisel plow to take plates off the table. So there's like, that is a, that is a huge, there's so many different things, um, uh, to talk about. Now, what about, what about if you just, what about if you just lease a property? So you don't own the property, you lease ground from a farmer and you're thinking, man, I wish this farmer would leave an acre in the back here. Uh, which sounds maybe kind of like what your permission situation was last year. Yes. What, so, you know, you just, you just want to be friendly. You want to, most of them, you know, don't understand how crazy we are about deer. So you kind of, <laughs> you know, I, I try and make it light and poke fun at, you know, I know this seems crazy. I know the deer seem crazy to you, but this would be, this like changed, you know, my, my season. And, uh, uh, some tips I would give people is I would say, you know, I don't want you to be out any money. I want you to be whole. I want you to make just as much as you would. If it's corn you're leaving, offer to mow that corn after deer season because they don't want to deal with those stalks out there. Hmm. Um, if you want to overseed, over say, would you mind if I overseeded some turnips? You know, don't go down the. If you do want to overseed rye or something, tell them that you will go in and spray it in the spring because it will come back. Not that you know their spray will probably kill it, but just saying things like that will let them know that like you're thinking about these things and you're not going to leave them with something they, they got to deal with. Cause as long as they're made whole and they don't have to deal with a mess, they're going to, they're fine. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, that makes sense. Okay. Um, so sorry, I, I broke Unfortunately, I, right now that, that can cost some money, but yeah. <laughs> so you were, you were going to go on to the next kind of food plot. I, I thought after that, you know, so like he said, access important. I'm always trying to pick like, you know, box blinds. So here we, we have our own line of box blinds that we have built. We have two different types of box blinds. We have a traditional one that goes up on, um, you know, four by fours, which you can adjust the height. And then we have another newer style one that was made for the strategy of mowing corn. And it's got jack stands as legs. And it's purposely meant to be real low. The base of that thing is about two or three feet in the air. And what's meant to do is go in, mow corn, stick the box. You know, actually, it starts before that. It's being efficient. When you go to this farm to to mow that corn, set the blind out that year. It's one truck, one trailer. It's a blind tractor, gooseneck, mower gone. Whereas, you know, some people like a trailer and stuff, but then that requires a blind on a trailer. That requires two trucks. You know, it's just less efficient. So in this rig, it's one rig. You go up there, you mow your corn, you drive out in the farm with your box on the front you set it to the side you mow your corn take the blind drive it into the edge of the corn on the side you want to come in from and then get out really quickly level the jack stand so the blinds level and you're not messing around with you know wooden legs and metal platforms and all this stuff and then you just break some stalks out the back and you have perfect egress and ingress that's the beautiful thing about corn you know hunting uh mowed corn is it's it's just the most deadly tactic there is. I mean, it gives you perfect ingress and egress. And when you're out of food, you just mow more and you move the blind in two minutes and you don't leave a lot of scent and whatever. Well, now one of the offshoots of that is in the blind is like kind of the color of corn. It's got big rubber bands to stuff corn in. whether or not that does anything is, you know, who knows, but we also use it to same thing with switchgrass. So a lot of what we do in the consults, we're taking the plates away. So we might recommend CRP, go, converting to CRP. Well, a lot of CRP programs, they want you to plant, you know, mixes of big blue, little blue, Indian forbs, all this stuff. 
And that's great. It takes the plates off the table. But the problem is a lot of that stuff doesn't get dense enough to screen as tight as we want. So I'll recommend to those people do the CRP because it takes the plates off the table. And then I'll say when it gets established and, and it starts coming up in the spring after you burnt it, go through there with a backpack spray and spray out a little three-foot trail that stays dirt throughout the summer. And that way you can fly through there in your e-bike quiet right to the back of the blind. And then, and then instead of doing that mix that CRP requires against your food plot that we've created, do like a 10-yard, 10-foot strip of solid switch. It's going to be more dense and do more screen. And, um, and then when I'm looking at those to lay them out, whether it's a tree stand or a blind, I don't, I'm not crazy about hunting in a blind. I use a blind as a tool. It's an arsenal in my, in my pack of tools. Novix tree stands are an arsenal in my pack of tools. It's something that allows me to get in any tree straight, crooked when I have to quietly. Like I look at stands and blinds and stuff as tools. So, so that low box blind is a tool for corn and then hunting the edge of a screen like switchgrass. So I'll approach my stand or my blind location from egress, ingress and egress. And sometimes it's just a wide open field that we're going to start creating with grasses and stuff, but it's always ingress and egress. And then that tree stand, that blind, it always has to be in a place that aligns with the thermal draw. So like picture God pouring water on your blind or tree stand, where's that water going to run? It's going to run downhill into that ravine in October. Sometimes I pay, I pay just as much attention to thermals as I always try to get that set up to where my wind direction is in line with the thermal draw because they will screw you if you're not paying attention. And the box blind can kind of help you hedge some of that because it's set free. So it's a tool to stay in the game, like Toby said. Um, you know, it's an odd upper. Like I always joke and say I'm going to write a book someday about math and probability and deer hunting because literally whether you're talking about trail cams in the summer, trail like tree stand locations, the direction you face a tree – no matter what you want to talk about deer hunting, it comes back to odds and probability. Yeah. Um, and so back to the food plot stuff, you know, thermals, ingress, egress, and then creating that pinch concentrations of scent, like Toby talked about. That's something that's not really talked a lot about in the hunting world. If you start paying attention, like when you're walking around a farm randomly and all of a sudden you come to a giant scrape or, you know, a cluster of scrapes or a giant rub or a cluster of rubs, more often than not, it, it's related to a concentration of scent. So like humans see with their eyes, you get a kid that goes out on a beach in spring break and there's a bunch of girls, he gets rambunctious, takes his shirt off, starts flexing his muscles, whatever. <laughs> deer, a big buck, when he's walking around in the dark, think like a deer, and all of a sudden you go through a concentration scent because there's a cliff and a creek crossing and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden you get hit in the face with a bunch of scent. You get rambunctious and you start flexing and tearing stuff up. And so that's where a lot of times that, that sign explodes if you really start paying attention. And so tree coys and scrapes, they're, a lot of people put them out and they don't, they get mixed, you know, results. If you put them in a spot, that's a concentration of scent where a deer naturally wants to scrape and rub, you're going to find that they're going to annihilate. I mean, we've got some tree coys that haven't been out a couple of years and they're about whittled in half, you know? So when you can take that plot and like, as far as size and stuff like that, you need a lot of times it, it depends on how huntable it is 
to how big it needs to be. So with the use of some woven wire fence, um, you know, mowing corn strategy, you're able to stay in the game because you're able to hunt a larger area because of the strategy behind how you're hunting it. Um, but like if I get a big bean field and I don't have some type of, of woven wire fence or something creating a pinch in and out of that, you know, end of the plot or whatever, I'll oversee just the area that's within bow range to up my odds that a doe is feeding within bow range, which up my odds that he's going to, you know, on a corn year, it's so much easier because you're just, you have that natural egress, you know, ability. And you also have the ability to keep mowing the corn and keep putting them right in front of you on a bean year. When you've got that line of switchgrass that we design, you have that line of switch or grass to keep moving the blind if he's coming out the other end or he's, you know, they're eating it back away from the blind or whatever. Um, I like keeping it simple. I, I like big plots like he talked about where everything, the whole, the whole, you got the golden corral out there. You got, you got your, your clover. And then I like putting my brassicas and my cereal grains in my, in my, in my uh, corn and beans. It doesn't get as robust, the brassicas. Um, but you, again, odds, instead of having four acres of food out there, two acres of grains and, or cereal grains and turnips, two acres of grains, corn and beans, now you have two acres that's got it all in there. So it just ups your odds, the huntability of it. And I will say like brassica strategy, um, I think I think you can plant brassicas, like you can plant an early round of brassicas on, let's say you got an acre field. You got a pinch that you've laid out in front of you. That's where you're going to shoot them is in this pinch. Well, you could take a brassica field. You could plant the same mix in the end of July and let those bulbs get huge, leaves get huge. And then you could plant the same mix in the middle of September and, uh, and it gets small and more palatable. And you could literally create a transition of deer feeding in front of you by planting the same exact thing, but planting it at a different time of year. I do think those big bulb turnips and stuff are like, there's a period from like November 28th to like December 10th or 8th that I think that, you know, they just, if you don't have like miserable, miserable weather, I think that they almost perform more than corn beans that they become powerful. So once again, it's strategy. It's not so much what you're planning. I think it's putting it all in one spot in a way that's huntable, having perfect ingress and egress, making sure your thermals don't screw you. Um, sometimes I'll have a tree stand in the tree over the top of the box. I'll hunt the same exact spot, the plot set up for this one spot. I'll hunt the box in October when I have, you know, light and variable and thermals to deal with and all this stuff. And in the rut, I'll get in the tree where think you got to use your ears a little more and you know your eyes and you got to see more stuff happens quicker i'll hunt the same spot just out of a stand when thermals and everything are a little more true in november hmm. can, can you just clarify one thing on that brassica topic you mentioned you know you could plant them in july and you'll get the big bulbs you could plant them in september and get the more palatable younger growth are, are you saying actually planting the same acre twice so you're planting the july and then your no, top seed no. or what are you saying no i'm just saying you could take one field and split it and plant plant gotcha. half of it now and half of it later and you could have two totally different like result you know their strategy for two totally different time periods yeah. not that they won't eat the big stuff especially if it's heavily heavy on radish in my opinion but 
it just those bulbs definitely become a lot more desirable late late season you know yep i follow you now okay um so overseeding you you guys have both talked about this overseeding standing beans or into like a, a mowed down corn plot something like that um i know some people have even you know i think you talked about this have negotiated with a farmer that they can do it right um can you fill us in on what you found to be the best timing? Like when's the right time to do that? What are the conditions you need for that to actually work? Cause that's one of those things that seems like a relatively easy thing to do. You don't need a bunch of equipment. You can kind of really increase your food output relatively simply. Uh, but you got to do it the right way to have it actually work out. Right. Oh yeah. What's the right way to yep. do that? Um, well, you know, as soon as they start turning yellow, you want to, you want to overseed them and you want to use the key is small seeds. Um, I pretty much keep it simple and just do winter rye. I'll do like two bags to the acre. Um, not, not rye grass, um, but cereal, cereal grain rye, uh, two bags to the acre as soon as they yellow. And then, um, as far as brassicas go, you know, you just want good seed to soil contact, which the smaller seeds tend to get that. But I think any of the brassicas, you know, turnips, you know, radish rape, I think all of it works well. Um, a lot of times I just end up kind of throwing, you know, all the, all my leftover seed out there at a certain point, you know, that I don't think is going to keep to the next year or whatever. Um, one other tip i would give you on overseeding is if you're truly planting corn yourself and you're and you're wanting to overseed it and stuff run your rows north and south because they'll get better light in there and uh, the best way to overseed corn if you truly want to get out there and get after it is to use a leaf blower uh, spreader and that way you can shoot it you know shoot it up in the air and whatever but a lot of times i don't go to that effort because the mowing of the corn is so powerful what I do is I'll, my first mowing of the corn getting ready for deer season will be like September 28th here in Illinois, a few days before the season, a week before the season. You're still early enough then to overseed it. So I'll mow that first area and then I'll overseed that one area, you know, and that'll serve me a little green plot through most of October. Okay. I follow you. Now, something I've seen you guys talk about in some of your videos where you're setting up farms, you've talked about, well, if, if the person buying this farm wants to just firearm hunt this, we would recommend setting up these plots and these food sources differently versus if this is somebody who wants to bow hunt it. Um, how would the things you're talking about right now, Bobby change? If I told you, well, I'm an out of state or in Iowa and I really can only get that every year gun tag or maybe i'm just a guy who prefers gun hunting most of the time or we've got a big family camp and that's really when we're going to focus on things so i'm not as worried about you know a bow hunting setup how does that change your food source food plot plan well i'll I'll give you a real world example um me and toby are our non-residents non-residents obviously in iowa and we've got a 30 acre um tillable field that we bought up against a no hunting property and it literally is a tillable field um and we are essentially designing a uh, a screen if you will about 50 yards of switchgrass from the road it's a long skinny 30 uh, against a no hunting property so we have a, a 50 yard stretch of switchgrass to screen from the road and then we have a narrower uh, um, 
screen of switchgrass that turns and, and heads north of the property line out in the field away from the cover from the no hunting property. Um, and it's probably about, I think it's about six, six, so it's 20 yards wide and it runs the length of the 30 and the 30 is pretty, it's, it's fairly narrow. Um, man, it's got to go up there. It seems like, it seems like a half mile, but it's probably, probably not quite that. And then at the far end, it'll turn back to this big no hunting property and it'll have, you know, 50 yards of, of grass up there. Well, on that east side where our egress will be, will be almost like a two track, you know, something to walk up, something that keeps our grass a little away from the adjacent farmer field. So we don't get any wind drift to kill our grasses. Um, and then, uh, from the road when the, and I'll stake all this out with snowplow stakes, you know, this year, when we go to the frost eating the switchgrass soon, I won't have him pull in and cut straight through the switch where you can look like a lane down into our our uh field of paradise back there which is about end up being about oh 22 or three acres um it'll kind of go at an angle or it will be like a kind of a half moon shape entrance road for the farmer into the big field and then if you go halfway up that screen on the right side the east side of the property our box blind will be you'll cut into that grass 20 yards and you'll get into the blind perfect ingress perfect egress and when you get in there and you sit down and you look out, you'll be looking at a 20 acre hidden field, um, you know, up against no hunting. And, uh, essentially we kind of, we, we went round and round about different strategies, but what we're doing there is we're keeping our, our cash rent high. He's going to plant the entire field for us. Um, then he's going to leave a standing crop for us, a couple acres of it. So again, We'll get our, we're not having to do anything once this grass is established because this farmer's doing everything for us and we negotiated to have him cover crop it. So now we're going to have a 20 acre, 23 acre, you know, winter rye or turnips or combination field, you know, into cut beans with, you know, two, three, four, five acres of standing beans. And we literally turned a tillable field into a world-class big buck killing machine and it, the noose is just less tight there's still tr a bunch of strategy there but you know it's just it doesn't have to be as tight you know what i mean you can back off you can it's it's just a little easier to do if that makes sense yeah so so do you have or do you try to create any kind of pinches still even if they're 150 yards wide or, or are you not as worried about that because of, you know, what you just described? I, no, I don't think so. Um, it's, it's just all about perfect ingress and egress. Like picture, you know, you're non-resident, you got a 40 up there in Iowa. You just want one gigantic food source. You just need perfect. You need to be able to hunt that field probability. You need to be able to hunt that field every day for two weeks. If that's, you know, if that's what it means, you got a big buck in there you can't be held at, at the mercy of, of odds and not be able to hunt it on a certain wind and, or you can't be hurting your odds every day by blowing deer when you come out of that field. So I'd say gun hunting, it becomes, it becomes a lot. You're doing the same thing. It's just the noose doesn't have to be tight as tight. And it actually, the, um, kind of the, the side effect of it is you, you pressure your farm less, 
you know what I mean? Cause you don't have to dive in quite as much. We did a consult for a guy up in uh, Decatur County, Iowa. Oh man. It was one of my favorite farms I've ever been on in my life. And we kind of quadrant the farm off into four places, had four giant food sources with absolutely perfect ingress and egress, um, to each spot. And I mean, done 500 acres for four food sources you know all your eggs in one basket big and and we did two corn plots two bean plots they rotate every year you asked toby that question that that would be one thing i'd add on there if you are going to have two big areas i'd try and rotate it to where it's corn and beans so you have both every year because they will favor one or the other on a given day i don't think we can totally figure that out as hunters it's like it seems like all this one day they all go to green one day they all go to beans one day they all go to corn um, but it's good to just have variety, you know. Yeah. Toby, would you add anything to that? Uh, you know, if I had a firearm specific farm or area, or if that was just my thing? Uh, no, you just, you know, you have that, that gun is kind of a great equalizer. It's kind of what I told, you know, the way I put it, you know, our 400 farm, 400 farm project that we had in, in Iowa this year, we kind of set that whole deal up as a, as a late season you know, more of a late season project and our bean plots were just a little bit bigger and we paid way, you know, the most attention to the, the access because it goes right back to what I said before, especially in a late season situation, you're going to have a lot of deer coming in and going from that field. And, you know, if you can't get in and out of there without blowing them up every time, I mean, you're kind of, you're spinning your wheels. So access is super important. And then making, making sure you have enough tonnage of food to still have those deer hitting that plot on the last day of the muzzleloader season. So you can't run out of food and you can't be blowing your plot up coming and going every day. Yeah. And one thing I would say about gun hunting specifically, and this is more like strategy, less about habitat or food plots or whatever, but I love gun hunting. I mean, obviously I'm a big diehard bow hunter, but I love gun hunting. And the way that I kind of approach this, this deer season is like, I'm like, risk reward i'm getting a little more invasive a little more invasive as the time goes i'm tightening the noose if i haven't killed him by gun season like i'm dropping dot on the map where i think he's at and i'm trekking in there with a climber you know or whatever just something mobile and i'm getting right in the thick of things with him with that gun and so you know a lot of times in 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 the consults and stuff we'll lay out a stand or two for gun that's just blazing the meat of things, you know what I mean? And it's like, don't go in. And this is Illinois specifically because our gun season comes in like right in, right in the heart of what I call the post lockdown cruise phase, like November 20th, you know? So that's kind of like that risk reward thing, gun strategy, like dive in when it's, when it's right, you know? Yeah. Interesting. Uh, one more thing on the on the food side, and it's it's not really food related, I guess, but it is sort of coming back to creating these or finding these locations of of scent concentrations. Toby, you you'd mentioned this early, the trichois, um, and I know you mentioned that Bobby, you'll sometimes actually get rid of other scrapes in the area to to further concentrate where you want it. Can you expand on that a little bit and just? Just give me a little bit more detail about why that is an important thing. And is that something you do on all of your food sources and plots? And then secondly, I know you guys create your own tree koi product. Um, can you can you talk to me why that style that you guys do 
is is more effective than sticking a cut down tree in the middle or you know one of these other tactics that people use to you know create a fake scrape fake scrape tree it's just probability so like you know if you're a big deer and you 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 know and this kind of dives into the hunting strategy type, side of things but if you're in the mindset in october of a territory cruise and you're not really heavily on the doe mindset and you're just you're marking territory because it's a high pressure night you show up to a food plot and you can just kind of bang into that back edge and you know maybe lip curl flex your muscles hit a scrape and go on to the next one well if you didn't have a scrape in that back cove or, or 50 yards or would he have come to the tree koi that is right in front of your box it also happens to be a massive concentration of scent who knows you don't know but to me you know it makes sense that that just ups it's just upping odds it's 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 that it's that last jenga block that you pull and his world comes crumbling down yeah yeah so uh, as far as the tree coys go we just they're just they're you know they're pretty simple they're just uh but they're made out of cedar they have a hemp rope on one side they've got a bracket on the other side to stick whatever whatever branch you want they're just, you know, they're robust. We put them in with a, with a, you know, um, an auger or whatever. So they're down in concrete them deep. So they're just, they're robust. They're going to stay there. You can put them in the exact spot you want. They rub the heck out of the cedar. And then, um, we also have a, we have a weather vane that we put on the top of the tree koi. And that weather vane allows you when you're sitting in a box, again, that last block of Jenga, and that, that last block got me last year, even when I was in a set free blocks, I didn't have on that face face with a monster video. I didn't have a tree koi. I didn't have that weather vane out there. And I opened that window and the thermals had turned and were cutting across the back edge of the plot and a doe caught me and took off. And then he ended up smelling me. So if I was watching that weather vane, if I had one of them out in that plot, I would not have opened that window yet. So that weather vane gives you the ability to essentially, you know, know when to not open the wind. It also teaches you a lot about kind of air currents and what's going on. And you, you realize real quick, there's a lot more going on than you kind of think. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. So that, that's, a deal, that's a deal with those things. Yeah. Even, so if you go on our site there, you can actually, there's a video that kind of keys in on those tree coys. And there's some really cool trail camera video of you know watching these bucks and watching the does and and see how they communicate through scent but this tree koi is even the does when they come by it each one of them will smell a different part of it and they'll reach up and they'll actually lick and nibble on the hemp rope and they'll rub it on their face and then you know a different the next deer will come in they'll do something different they'll smell the rubbing part of it but it's you know, deer communicate through scent primarily, and that's you're just giving them a place to do that. Yep, a that, place where they do that on our terms. Yes, yeah, and that seems that's like a a, th- a theme of everything you guys seem to be doing. Is you correct me if I'm wrong here, but I feel like one of the one of your secret sauces is being really good at at noticing and analyzing what the deer want to do naturally and then enhancing yeah. it where you can or hedging, tweaking, twisting, shifting a bit to make sure that what deer naturally do 
happens in a place that's advantageous to you as the hunter and everything seems to be connected. Yeah. You just summed it all. Yeah. Yes. You have to be able to think like a deer in order to, you know, and anybody can do that, you know, but you have to be able to think like a deer in order to kind of, you know, work backwards to set, set the farm up, you know, and it's even like the, the, the blinds, you know, we talk about, we have our own blinds made. Well, we didn't do that because we wanted to like, you know, we didn't do it by default because we want to build a big blind company. We did it because we wanted to build in little layers of micro strategy, the way that we wanted to utilize a blind, the way we wanted it set free. Like our windows are glass, so they don't scratch. That we have matte vinyl blackout on the outside. The outside of the blinds black. The inside is black. When you open the window, there's no flash because it's vinyl blackout film on the outside. There's no glass. There's no glare. That's that last jangle block that you open. You open a glass one or a plexiglass one, and it reflects, and a doe catches you and starts wigging out. You know what I mean? So there's so many like little tiny micro strategies and it all adds up like one thing might be silly. Another thing might be silly, but when you have like 15 or 20 things going on, it starts changing the game. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of uh, like famous football coaches and different folks in the sporting world who talk about this idea of, of the accrual of marginal gains. It's just the tiny thing today and the tiny thing tomorrow and the tiny thing, every one of these little pieces stacks up just like you're saying, Bobby. And I I, I 2000% agree that that is, that's the difference between, you know, your your guy or girl who can be consistently successful and the person who lucks into it every once in a while. It's it's just stacking stacking every little marginal yeah. gain and it grows into something. Um, Paying attention to. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like I said, we all have different strokes of the brush. That's what's kind of cool about like this kind of group of whitetail kind of minds. Everybody's got a different stroke. It's like art. At a certain point you know, everybody's successful or whatever. It's just, everybody's got a little different twit take on it, you know, a little different stroke of the brush. Um, but I do feel like the one thing that we can all agree on is the ability to increase odds. Yeah. And, and we're kind of, um, we're jumping on top of the final thing I wanted to talk about before I even asked the question. So we might have just answered the question I'm about to ask you, <laughs> but, uh, but I want to wrap it up here. I've, we, uh, we could definitely talk through these things for about four more hours. So we do probably need to set up a, a future get together to do more of this because there's a lot I still wanted to cover it. I just can't keep it here till midnight. Um, but, but you guys do have this really unique opportunity where you get to, you know, bring on, you know, the best of the best and spend time with them, either helping them with their properties or them joining you to go out and do this kind of stuff for other people. So you've, you've been able to pick the brains of the best of the best and work with the best of the best. So other than, you know, those people or situations where, you know, you have a lot more money to use for this kind of thing, or a lot more time to spend on this kind of thing, other than those two variables that are outside of, you know, every person's particular circumstances, what, what do the best of the do Sorry, what do the best of the best do that the average guy or girl doesn't? So what separates the top 1% from the other 99%? Um, is it just what we talked about or is there anything else that you can point a finger to? Specifically kind of on the you know, working on a habitat side of things that stands out to you 
Toby, if you want to start. Um, I just think education, like Bobby talked about earlier, the more, whether it's our stuff you're watching or Ben's stuff you're, you're watching or anybody else who's, who's big into the management and development. I mean, just the more knowledge you can get and then figuring out if that particular knowledge applies to your piece, you know, it's again, it's coming right back to no piece of the same, you know, and, and everybody's got a little bit of spin, but the more knowledge you can gain, you know, the better you're going to be with, with how it applies to your place. And, you know, these guys that we deal with and that are the bigger, you know, the bigger names in the industry. Like these guys, they eat, sleep, deer hunting like like we do it's like it's 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 part of every conversation it's it's you know the the boots on the ground every day or you know everybody's phones are going off with your cell cams and you're you're continue to building your hit list and you're you're just paying attention to all these little things and you know i I hear what you're saying you know you know more or less the average guy you know they, they they don't have the advantage of time to pay attention to nothing but deer hunting like some people do and, and that's that's fine but that's where watching the videos and listening and learning from the guys that do have the time to spend endless hours in the woods learning that that's that's the biggest thing to me is learn from what everybody else ha- has to say yeah great point bobby bobby what would you say you've seen yeah i agree with with that too you know there's definitely going to be people that are listening that feel like you know they can't relate or whatever but um you know, I grew up, I didn't have anybody in my family even hunted. I was in the suburbs of North Carolina. And for some reason I had this like burning passion to, to deer hunt and ended up finding an older gentleman to take me and this and that. And, but as time went on, I, I got in on a lease. I got my dad into hunting. Our lease was a dog hunting club in South Carolina. And I remember we even joined in on some of the dog hunting deals and you know, and then I moved up to upstate New York and I hunted in the Adirondacks with guys and did drives in the Adirondacks. And, you know, what I'm getting at is no matter where you are, different styles of hunting come about, um, just because of the, the, the way that you are, or the way the habitat is, or the food down South of the pines and stuff, it, it's hard to hunt, you know, in the mountains of the Adirondacks, there's not a lot of deer. And so they're doing drives. So my point is like, don't i would tell people don't ever have like you know um your guard up or a preconceived notion about somebody else's deer knowledge they're all just deer and you can learn like the dog guys for example i mean they know better about deer's escape routes and how they travel than anybody the guys in the adirondacks they know a lot about that as well you know the kansas deer are nomads they wander 15 miles for food like everywhere you go the deer are different and you have guys that are consistently successful in those areas. They become masters of that. So like, you know, listen to those guys that are successful in their areas, pull snippets. And then before you know it, something you learn from the guys in a different area, you can apply, you know, to the Midwest and it just makes you a bit better hunter there. Um, I think, I think just in general, people being a little more open, to listening you know like for example we have the opportunity to be around a lot of big mature deer um like i even listen to lee a lot lee's around a ton of mature deer he's, he's become a master of growing old deer he's passing deer that are 200 at five because he wants them seven you know if you can learn more about how a seven-year-old deer 
behaves, well then when you do have a seven-year-old deer to hunt, you're ahead of the curve, you know? So kind of what Toby said, just listening, learning from everybody, um, not, not thinking that there's a one size fits all approach cause there's not, um, you know, and definitely they don't need to be a big name person to be listened to. I know a lot of guys I look up to and stuff that are killers and, you know, they don't, you know, they, they just do their thing. So, uh, just listening and learning and, and, and definitely learning from the deer that people always say, well, how do you know how to hunt a farm? If it's your first year, it takes a while to learn it. And I always say, well, I'm learning a deer and he's teaching me the farm. Just pay attention to what he's doing and he'll teach you the farm, you know? And then pretty soon, you know how to basically, you kind of know how he's going to use the farm because you've seen it before, you know. Yep. Yep. I I got to tell you, this is um, this is the fun stuff. Like, this is really, really fun stuff. Trying to pick apart those different little nuances, learning the deer, learning the property, learning how this little change here affects this little thing over here and how it's all connected in between. And, uh, and I, I appreciate the level of thought that you guys put into it that that stands out and uh and i i i enjoy it and obviously the results are uh are indicating that what you're what you're putting out there is working so uh if if folks bobby want to learn more if they want to see what you guys have up to if they want to see future properties that might be available for sale i mean you got a lot of things going on where can people find all of these different things um, so our YouTube channel, the white tail group, um, basically has a lot of series where that we just follow, you know, the, the cameras follow the farm. The first video might be, uh, you know, the plan, the next one might be the logging project or, you know, excavation project or whatever it might need. And then, you know, the food plots and stuff, and then the final product. So it's almost like kind of like an HGTV type, you know, format. Um, and then our Facebook page, you know, gets a lot of stuff on there not strong on Instagram yet. We need to work on that. Um, we got stuff on TikTok. on our website. We have a farms page. It kind of shows what's coming down the pipeline and we have a pre-market buyer list and that list, we kind of, we kind of, and we're kind of changing our format a little. A lot of times we've been doing the plan on the farm, but we're starting to come back and do the plan on a zoom style meeting where we talk about it and physically show it all on, on Onyx on the maps. Um, and that way it makes more sense before we get into developing it. Um, so we just did one the other day and I will send you a link to that when it's up on YouTube and you could maybe put it out there on your, on your platform. People watch, cause that's going to take everything we just tie, talked about and it's going to tie it all in and they're going to be able to see it happening, you know, in the layout of a farm and kind of our approach with all these different strategies, um, and, you know, generally our, our website's got a lot of information. It's got our tillable leasing program. It's got, you know, um, it's got uh, the logging information. It's got farms for sale stuff. It's got blinds and tree coys. It's kind of got a little bit of everything. So. Very cool. And Toby, is there anything else on your end with, with real estate or anything else that you want to mention? Um, yeah, you can see, you can get on uh, whitetailgroup.com and look for all the projects that are coming down the pipeline like Bobby says and you know, we talked a little bit about um you know the pre market thing and, and a couple of examples but you know I just people you know if they're looking for a piece of ground you can actually reach out to us and say hey I'm here's what I'm wanting here's the area I want to be in and you know I'd like for you guys to find it develop it you know and, and when I take over I want to finish product and, and so there's a 
a process that can happen, feel free to reach out to us and just talk about that and watch the videos on it. Uh, other than that, um, we don't have something you're looking for. You could get on landguys.com and see some other farms in the area. And even if, you know, something develops to where you buy a, a, a farm that we don't own, we'd still be happy to do the console and jump in there and help you with any part of the project or the plan. So it's a couple of different ways that you can get involved. Awesome. Yeah, and the console side of our business is kind of blowing up. That's where it all begins. I mean, that's where the magic happens. I, I tell people, you know, 4,500 bucks and you have this group of people help you shave off years of trial and error and property value. I, you know, I say if we can increase your property value a hundred dollars per acre, which is, it's probably going to be more like several hundred, you know, for every hundred acres that we increase by a hundred dollars an acre, it's 10 grand. It's double your investment. So it's a no brainer from the standpoint of what you learn that will follow you forever on that console, regardless of property, the use you get out of the property while you own it and the resale value. It's, it's, it's a no brainer. And for me, I'm so passionate about that because it's, we're truly like changing the course of people's you know hunting experience by helping them even on their own farms with the consulting. Wow. Very, very cool stuff. I, uh, I can certainly see the appeal to having, uh, you guys and some of your pals come out there and share your perspective on a place. Uh, that sounds like a fun, very interesting day. So, uh, guys, yeah. this has well, been maybe a we'll do fun a project night. together. Hey, let me know. I'm all for it. Yeah. I, uh, be thought. I love that kind of stuff, and uh, I'm guilty of always selfishly wanting to pick the brains of the best and the best myself, which uh, you guys qualify as. So I appreciate it, guys. Thank you so much for for staying up late here tonight to talk through all this stuff and sticking around for so long. Um, this is uh, this is some great next-level habitat know-how that I, I know folks are going to enjoy. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And that is a wrap. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for sticking around for a long one here today. Hope you found some valuable concepts, strategies, ideas, tips, tricks, uh, something you can bring to the table when improving your own whitetail properties. Uh, I know I certainly did. So with that all said, let's wrap this one up. Let's get out there, get to work on our own places. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.